Hey everybody, time for another Shop Talk show. This is episode number 218, a rapid fire episode with just Father Dave and I. That's where we answer as many questions as we possibly can. No guests, no drama, no news, no nothing like that. But let me say at the top of the show that this episode of Shop Talk is brought to you in part by Braintree Payments. Mobile app development can be complex, but integrating your payments no longer has to be. With Braintree, your business can accept nearly every type of payment from any device with just one integration. Learn more at braintreepayments.com slash shop talk and codepen, codepen.io. Slash pro if you want to see the pro features, <laughs> one of which is uh, templates. You know, you can save any pen as a template in CodePen if you do the same kind of thing over and over or like a certain set of dependencies added or anything like that. You get unlimited of those if you go pro on CodePen. Ah, for now, let's, uh, you know, let's just kick things off. Hey there, Shopper Maniacs. You're listening to another episode of the Shop Talk Show. I'm Dave Rupert, and with me is Chris Goyer. Oh, you'd think we'd be more professional. Here we are at episode number 218. As I said at the top of the show, this is a rapid fire episode. Just Dave and I answering as many questions as we can get to. The goal being 10. Can we do 10, Dave? I bet we can. We're going to do 10 in addition to this follow-up about... um, uh, what do they call that typographic concept where like each line is like perfectly spaced with the next line, including the headers and block quotes and anything else that comes along? Vertical rhythm and modular scale. So yeah. Our, so our we've good, talked about it in the past. And yeah, what do you, what do you say? Well, our good friend Tim Brown, friend of the show, called in. And, and he, he, it was in another rapid fire. I believe we are discussing, you know, do you keep vertical rhythm? And both of us were basically like, Meh. <laughs> but uh, I think Tim is kind of like here to shine a little bit of light on why you may actually want to do that. So let's uh, take a listen, shall we? Tim, take it away. Hey guys, this is Tim Brown. I just listened to episode uh, 211 where a listener asked about vertical rhythm and specifically cited my 2010 build talk. Uh, I want to clarify something about modular scales and tell you what I think about vertical rhythm. Modular scales are like rulers. They help you measure, but you decide what you're measuring. The real power of modular scales is that they anchor your measurements to something sturdy. Web layouts and viewport dimensions are fluid, of course, but a person's default font size, whatever that is, they have it. That's something you can count on. So it's smart to make that the basis of your system of measurement. And relating various measurements by a ratio, in my experience, makes things look really good. Of course, I tweak things and eyeball things. I don't always stick to a scale. No one ratio is better than other ratios. Some people think that there's magical power in the golden section. But I think of it as a ratio that feels like 
some classic serif typefaces feel. It lends that feeling to my work. And that's really what I get out of ratios. They bring a certain feeling to the work in the same sort of indescribable way that using some fonts brings a feeling to the work. Now, in that talk I gave at Build, which was my first ever conference talk, I showed a couple of things that I would not recommend doing. One of them is I used pixels for measurement. I did that on purpose in that talk because I thought introducing modular scale math would be easier that way. I thought showing M's, which at the time lots of people were resisting, would overcomplicate the examples. I think that was a mistake because lots of people have watched the video and I don't want them to think pixels are a good thing to use for sizing. The other thing I did was I picked a number from the modular scale for line height. That's problematic. I've come to think differently about line height. And this gets to the vertical rhythm issue. This is a little tricky to explain, but stay with me. Let's say you're typesetting a website. You have a font for your body text, and that text is set at a specific font size. Okay? Your next decisions should be about how narrow or how wide paragraphs of body text can be and still look good to you. In a fluid layout, the width of a text block flexes within those limits. And what you'll find is that wider text blocks look better with loose line spacing, and narrow text blocks look better with tight line spacing. So what we really need is fluid line spacing, which I have dubbed molten leading. And you can pull this off with JavaScript or with CSS calc and viewport units. But you see the problem here. That would interfere with vertical rhythm. I give a talk called Universal Typography, where I describe the relationship among font size, line height, and width. Those three things are really important in combination. Because of the way text moves in fluid compositions, you almost never want to nail down your line height. Now, it's possible that in the future, we could advance molten letting to be more like molten white space, and that might help vertical rhythm stay intact better in a fluid composition. But I think there's a deeper issue here, and that is that we seek definitive formulaic answers to aesthetic problems. We want rules to follow so that we feel like we did things right and so that we have a defensive position if someone criticizes our work. The thing is, you can't prove design is good. You can only convince people. And when you try to do that by employing a method like vertical rhythm, which currently doesn't mesh well with the web's fluidity, you have a problem. All right. Well, thanks, Tim, for sending that in. Uh, like, So Tim is obviously really good at type. He's an expert. Uh, we, uh, run a fart podcast. So Chris, what are your thoughts? I, does it, does it, I mean, it seemed it? reasonable to me. It seemed like a little kind of a baby bear porridge, just right. Kind of, kind of thing. You know, he, he didn't really make any, um, strict rules there in, in what Tim was saying. He's just saying, you know, you can have some modular scale happening. You can, I don't know, play with, with, with vertical rhythm a bit, but don't be too, 
you know, you can play around with things. You can eyeball things. You can, you know, it's extra, it's actually more important to use a concept like molten letting than it is to kind of, you know, make sure that a paragraph, you know, my, I mean, the, when I was bringing it up, my point was that vertical rhythm, it's like a little silly to me to be fighting a paragraph 5,000 pixels down the page that you can't even see to make sure that it's aligned on the same vertical grid as something, you know, 5,000 pixels up or whatever. I was like, that's so stupid. It's like, it's this, and, and then what Tim is saying is that like those kind of fights are like, it's just somebody who really wants a rule to adhere to so that nobody can ever say like, oh, the type on that website isn't good because they can just be like, yes, it is. Take a ruler to it. It's amazingly perfect. Get your graph paper out. It's perfect. Yeah. When really, like, it's not even that the fact that it lines up doesn't even matter. It's more important that you that you, it feels good as you look at it. What you can see looks good. I really like the molten letting idea. I just brought up Tim's post on that. I think I'll, I'll bring that up again. I think that his post on this is from 2012. I wonder if there's uh, easier ways to do it these days. I don't think so because, you know, the idea being that the line height is a little taller as the browser window gets wider or, or not the browser window I mean that's how it manifests because of min- media queries but as the line length gets wider is the actual metric you want to use so yeah, I guess yet again another another uh, really good use case for element queries and container queries mm-hmm. that uh, we should be we should be thinking about but yeah as the line length gets longer the line height should get a little bit bigger not drastically and in fact the demos in his blog post on this are very subtle in how they do it but you can tell how much better it feels yeah i you know i think i'm with you the like the like strict adherence to like a vertical grid seems bonkers to me but i think and tim even was like yeah that's like you kind of actually want that fluidity uh and i really like tim's point of view like just like your grid like your uh you know layout grid you kind of have a rhythm that's sort of what you're going for is some kind of rhythm like this is eight units wide that's four units wide or whatever like i think i think type should probably have that same thing thing and i actually read i was reading a post on smashing mag i think yesterday or something about like modular scale and and you know it was like people do like you know you you multiply you have a base font size and then you multiply every font size after that by 1.2 so it's only it's 1.2 the size of 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 1.2 m's bigger than the previous font size so if you're doing headings they scale up really nice and and i actually i i was like uh, and then somebody was like, or you could do 1.334 or 1.6 you know, or whatever feels good or looks good to you, you can use. You don't have to do like the, the one thing Tim said, uh, which I really like because um, I don't know. How do you, we usually pick font sizes? It's like um, even numbers or, or you're like, um, I don't know. Uh, give me a one. Uh, give me a niner. Give me a, a 17. That looks good. We did it. Okay. Let's let's ship it you know so i i think like giving like uh kind of purpose to your to your um type scale i think that's actually kind of uh, that's pretty attractive i i i like it but you know a lot of it is kind of eyeballing well if too. you pick a ratio and it looks good to you cool like if you were just to be like uh okay you're faced with this 
block of CSS, right? Here's the here's the CSS. Picture this in your mind. H1, open bracket, close bracket. H2, open bracket, close bracket. H3, open bracket, close bracket. All the way down to H6. And then font size colon space. And you're like, okay, this is it. This is the moment. I'm defining how big these headers are going to be. Pretty, a pretty like substantial, like this is how people scan your site. This is a pretty substantial decision. Go ahead. It is. And you're like, uh, you know, if you're, if you're like, if you're just like absolutely not a designer at all and you're just writing the CSS and you're just not thinking very hard about this. And <laughs> 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20. <laughs> well, hey, that, you know, I, I honestly think that's not the worst decision you could make. It's even worse to be like, you know, Oh, I don't know. I don't one hundred seventy five, fifty, twenty five, or you know, like some like yeah. big drastic joy, or or like ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, sixty, whatever. I don't care. Fifty pixel fonts on a phone. You ever come across that? <laughs> that's that's some web design. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Much more useful to just add a. If you're going to add one little ingredient to this, set them all in rems, and then write a few media queries that adjust the document size rem. That's the kind of go to. I think we have a question about that later, but. But yeah, but if you're like, well, I'm going to pick a harmonious, like I'm going to base these font sizes on the sound that a duck makes on March 3rd on a mountain in Japan or something, then I'm like, okay, (laughs) Jesus. It's set to the Japanese pentatonic scale. (laughs) There was some like early modular scale that was kind of based on rhythm. And I, you know, it's like... I think like when I'm like, when rubber hits the road, that doesn't stick. But, you know, again, like it's, you know, you're just drawing inspiration. You're trying to find a rhythm, like trying, you know, just like notes would be in a rhythm, you know, and notes are just increasing Hertz, you know? So it's just, it's interesting. Why don't don't you open a piece of content on your own site that probably exists and be like, what is the header structure we normally use? I can do that on like the code pen blog. It's really easy. Like, like, Oh, we use like H twos and H threes a lot. And actually H four is quite a bit too. And like, they're usually like just the style of post, which we have hundreds to pick from are generally like this. So like, I just want to make sure that like, there's a really big difference between like an H3 and an H4 because the way, like especially on CSS tricks is like this too. I use H3s like a lot throughout the post for better or worse, but there's now lots of them. So like the H3 is really like a section breaker in a blog post. I use that like that. And so it'd be kind of like setting up our code is like the H3. And then there's H4s within that to be like, first do this, next do this or whatever. I mean, that might be an ordered list, but so I just want there to be like a lot of like uh, margin top on H3. H3s. That's what I always do because I want it to really like break apart the H3 section. And then like H4s, I want it to be a lot different than an H3 because I want it to look like it's a part of that H3 section area. So sometimes I'll do like it's smaller and bolder or something. So it just looks like a lot different. It's not just a size difference. It's stylistically different as well. And I'm making those choices because of just how articles tend to go on CSS tricks, you know? Like it's totally unique to my site. You probably have unique things on your site too that are different. Like you you think of and use headers in a slightly different uh, kind of way. Well, mine's a mishmash. Reagan gave me a really good <laughs> type setup and then i've just murdered it over the years but i would read a post about how you do it on css tricks because it is you know you 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 are kind of using these headings for purpose and uh, you know you're testing that type system not on six pages of a website you're testing it across like 
thousands of posts, you know, I think that would be really cool to read about. I also, I was thinking of type systems. I like GitHub, like their markdown preview thing. Uh, it has problems, but man, is it like when you're like marking up a post, yeah, like writing a markdown and you open like markdown preview or something and it just like just has hierarchy. Oh man, what do you, it gives you a good feeling, doesn't it? It like, does. And it seems like I don't think that kind of thing gets enough credit because it seems just like, oh, GitHub, like not exactly known for design, but it, you know, but it kind of is, you know, like they have a lot of like, it's just, it's a solid base. It's a solid foundation. It's a solid design structure that is the, the GitHub look. And it really is great design, I think. And the README is a, or, or whatever, because it, it, it's not just, it's not just README. Yeah. It's, it's, they use that same CSS all over the place. It's, you know, for issues and on GIS and, and in, in their wiki and whatever. It all uses that same setup. Yeah. Like the H1s are big and bold and have like a line under them, but not all of them have a line under them and stuff that it's, it's, it's smart. It's good. And, and I, and I tend to think that they probably didn't pick some harmonious, you know, modular scale. They probably just honed in on this over time, you know? Yeah. It could have been like micro nudges. Also who, I mean, medium has a pretty good, you know, medium ebbs and flows to me, but like it has a pretty great like type system. I think that's why people use it. But, oh, it, um, you it know, it, like it, pick some great typography and have an epic startup. You know, like I really think that posts just look so good on Medium that that is at the heart of their popularity. I mean, Medium is literally WordPress.com or Blogger.com, but <laughs> it's the new one with good type. And, and isn't it's so, it's wild how things change. Mm hmm. Wild. All I right. would think that, you know, so I'm looking at, for example, modularscale.com, which is really cool and can help you make some of these choices. But it, you are looking at just headers in a row, kind of, is essentially what you're looking at. And I know they're not, they're not saying use these for your H1 through H6. It's like related to body copy and anything else as well, too. But I would say make your choices based on like the content of readme files and the content of issues and the content of, of wiki posts or whatever, where you're looking at headers and body copy and block quotes and chunks of code and pull quotes or whatever. I'll look at it all together rather than just looking at like your H1 through H6 together and making choices based on that, because it's not the right context. Yeah, we better move on, though. Yeah, I was, yeah, now you got me. I think I'm destined for a job in like, <laughs> like product management or something, because I really like writing postmortems and, and like, like issue, like, diagnosis and state of the unions in GitHub issues. So, cause the type's good. I like doing it. Anyway, it's something I like to do. Uh, Adam Moore writes in, uh, I was wondering what your specific thoughts were on MongoDB. I'm a front end guy, obviously. Uh, well, cause you're listening to the show and my only real DB experience is with SQL. Uh, as most servers I've owned have been lamp stacks, uh, that's like Linux, Apache, MySQL, and PHP, for if you don't know. And now I'm working on a full Node React stack and debating what's the easiest, best to use. I've heard that Mongo has stability issues, uh, but at the same time, uh, know of many companies using it in production. Uh, so what's the scoop in terms of a front-end guy could relate to? So... 
Chris, do you use Mongo at all? I've never used it. I, isn't it? I mean, uh, I don't know. It's one of those things where I mostly hear it when somebody's making a joke about it or something, but that's both good and bad. You know, that means that it's used by lots of people and it's like it's big enough and uh, around enough and in the community enough for a joke to even be made about it. But I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm on MongoDB right now. It's huge. Tons of companies use it. They have a conference for it. Uh, they have 240,000 followers on Twitter. It's a big deal, isn't it? So, Dave, what do you know about it? It's one of these NoSQL deals, right? Yeah, so it's a NoSQL, but um, they've actually like built in uh, relational joins. Like, like if uh, you have like normally a, that's what you throw away with NoSQL, right? Is that you? That's can. usually what you throw away. But I think they've figured out a way to do it in a in a, in a performanty kind of way uh, with. Uh, the the MongoDB, but um, yeah, I, I think it's just a different data store. It's basically a string of JSON, a giant. Your database is a giant JSON file, um, and it seems to I, me that I mean, that would be getting more and more popular with front end web apps, which was a mm-hmm. big a big deal. And you know, particularly, I've been playing with um and building stuff with React and Redux, and it's like. Redux is your web app, and it is a big chunk of JSON. So mm-hmm. it seems very appealing to me to, to like. I'm sure it is appealing to some folks to be like, "Oh, wow, I can work in Redux and have this like kind of awesome structure for my web app, and then like I can just like take that chunk of and just put it in MongoDB or something." Yeah, I mean, it's it's like maybe it's not that easy, and I just am making stuff up there because I'm not really a back end person. But well, like so, uh, like. PHP, right? It comes from the very like like MySQL kind of world. It, it it's like it knows how to do MySQL, um, but like Node is JavaScript, so Node knows what to do with JSON. And and I'm oversimplifying things. I'm sure somebody's gonna complain to me. Uh, please send your tweets to trashcan at shoptalkshow.com. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So. Um, <laughs> that was too good. Okay, here we go. So, um, uh, so yeah, I I think like I think it makes sense. It's, you're basically you map reduce your way through a Mongo da- database, and if you're not familiar with that, that's basically like you just say I'm going to perform this function all the way uh, through this uh, this whole entire tree of data, um, and I think it's good. I I think it's good. There have been so there's this thing about databases. It's called the cap. Theorem, C-A-P, theorem, however you spell that. And it's basically when you have a database, you have like three choices. And it's a there's three things you can pick to, basically. It's consistency, availability, and partition tolerance. So consistency is um, uh, does... what would that be? It would be like. Well, I'll tell you what. Yesterday, GitHub was having some issues, and I would like I would like make a pull request, and then I would click on the link to see that pull request, and be like, that pull request doesn't exist. So there was so they were having some consistency problems with the data. Like I was getting uh, my web requests were going to different servers, some of which knew about the data, and some of them didn't, and it was yeah. weird. And so yeah, consistency is like Johnny and Susan at different computers should see the same data. Like they, Johnny and Susan should both see the the same data in there uh, when they hit the database. Availability means things are up, and that's kind of like uptime, um, you know, and 
and we are all familiar with that. And partition tolerance is being able to shard it, like basically like, you know, make it like just break a de- database or replicate a database over like thousands of databases. And you can only have two of these is the idea Well, with this it, theory. It's often like a, a choose two out of, you can only do two out of three. Well, um, like everyone wants, cause you know, to have high consistency, you kind of lose the partition because you and Johnny and Susan could be hitting the different, could be hitting different, um, shards, shards. And so now they've lost all consistency. So, and then, but if you want to like make them hyper consistent, you've now dialed down the availability, right? Cause you have to slow queries into it. You have to like basically check that things are together. So, so have things gotten better since this theory existed or which, which two are Mongo? <laughs> well, I think Mongo is the, uh, I think it's the, uh, uh, availability and partition possibly. Um, this makes uh, like I, for the worst ever marketing material. Yeah. We're we've prob- chosen two of these very important sounding we, things. We chose, we only got two out of three. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but so the things I've heard about Mongo is it's had uh, like very like serious issues. I think it's still good. And I think people should run it in production. I think it like, like I, I'm not dogging it, but I've heard like very like kind of serious issues where it's like you go to the, database tips over you go to the database there's no data like just wipe out so and that that can happen anywhere i mean that could happen on a postgres that's not that's insecure you know um postgres is in the same category i think so i mean uh, postgres is is interesting too it's an sql so you can write sql and throw things in and out but it can also do flat file storage (gasps) so like it has like a no SQL mode you can trigger on tables and, and it's just, it's, it's a different world we're living in. So I yeah. think like, it seemed to like kind of make sense for code pen at some point because some of the like files that you create, you know, which is kind of like the HTML and the CSS and the JavaScript maybe make more sense to, in a Postgres world. I'll tell you that we, we like, you know, that we are working with a database person who was super duper excited about Postgres uh, and was going to get us moved over to it. And, you know, going to do all this consulting and work and did, you know we did lots of work trying to figure out what our current database structure is like and uh, and continued to be excited about it. It didn't actually work out. I'm not sure exactly why, but in, in part, I think it was because I, I, you know, I'm captain, like all pragmatic usually, like, oh, interesting. Okay, I'm willing to do this. Is it, you know, does it modernize us? Does it make the database faster? Does it organize data better? Can we learn more from our data? Uh, like, what is it? Te- please tell me what are the advantages for us undergoing this fairly large transition? Anything we do that's big on database ends up kind of taking a long time and being very like dangerous and like not dangerous but like you know it has to take time because it's such a complicated process it needs to be done correctly and whatever and there just wasn't one thing we could point out that really made it seem like worth the time and effort and money so we don't use Mongo at CodePen. We don't use, even though we have things on Node and React now, we don't use Postgres. We just use MySQL. So if you want to, if you want to be super modern and still use like a cool, super hip Node React stack, it doesn't mean you have to use one of these other things. Even though maybe, like Dave was saying, they kind of they know about each other better, or they feel better together, or they're they're mentioned together in blog posts together. It doesn't mean that you 
have to not use MySQL or, or some Microsoft database or whatever else. I mean, you can make it work. It's just data. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't. I'm using Firebase right now, which is pretty cool. Um, it's again kind of a no SQL, just JSON stuck in a thing. Um, but it's it has its own intricacies. Like you can't use store arrays. Basically, it's so everything has to be. An you object. need something it's, really, really simple. You should check out Airtable. I've been talking with them. Oh, and yeah. It's it's really interesting in that it's it's JSON APIs to data as well. But you can't like it's it's pretty limited. Like I've already ran into some limitations over what I kind of expected it could to, that it could do, but it, but it can't. But it, it's really great at what it does, and it has a super nice um, UI in it, and and it and it has like it's like a Google Spreadsheets in a sense. That's what your database looks like is Google Spreadsheets, but like a nice version of that with really easy ways to sort and to you know to define what data types things are, and then it's easy, really easy to read and write and delete and create and all that stuff from. from from really nice APIs for from from that data. So, Adam, if you're a front end guy and you're asking about data stores and Mongo and servers and stuff, sure, look at Mongo, look at Postgres, look at just using MySQL, look at Airtable, look at Firebase. You know, there's plenty of, of things you can do that are of varying complexity. You know, there's no there's no one true answer to any of this stuff. Airtable is interesting. It's like uh, uh, it's a spreadsheet you can drop attachments and tags in it's kind of it's kind of wild let's i don't know i feel like it's just the world's easiest api too you're like oh i need to create uh some new data you click on the documentation where like here is an example ajax request of how you put new data into this including (laughs) your api key and the exact url that you need to hit copy paste done you know, I feel like, like this could be like uh, uh, like you could build an app like really easily, like just kind of like stub out dummy data, especially as a front end person. That's what's yeah. so empowering about it, because you know people that like that grew up, you know, writing, you know, all these kids today writing little Python apps and stuff. You already know how to deal with data and stuff. But I think of a lot of us that like spend so much time in the front end universe. Like you could build an app in CodePen on this because mm. of its data. So anyway. Uh, we went too long on it. We're 28 well, minutes into this and we've answered one question. One question. All right. Let's speedball. <laughs> <laughs> Mark J. Uh, right. Thanks for shortening your last name, Mark. <laughs> Mark J. Right. Said, I work at a small e commerce provider as a front end developer. I belong to a team of about 25 people whose responsibilities range from product design to front end and back end development uh, to reporting and analytics. For years, we've called ourselves the client services team but as the web has grown more complex so uh have each teammate's individual responsibilities oh so have each teammate's individual responsibilities and our work now serves the company as a as much as our individual clients uh we've embarked on a department restructure but the only problem is we can't settle on a name that reflects our team offer what our team offers or whether we should even remain one department do you have any experience on this type of challenge or any thoughts on how uh we can manage it as strategically as possible so growing team takes a does a lot of client work but also does a lot of internal work yeah and there's 25 people and the the final the way that this ends after we've learned so much from Mark 
Any thoughts on how we can manage it strategically? We can't, we can't settle on a name that reflects these 25 people or whether we should even remain in one department. That strikes me as interesting in that why are you considering like just splitting up just because of like you can't think of what to name yourselves or something? I know you're not, you didn't exactly say that, but it's like, do you like these people? Do you do excellent work together? Then think, you know, like then stop and be like, okay, this is awesome. We're doing good stuff. We're this, we're this, we're this team of people like, like doing good work at this company. If you want to come up with a name, great, but like I wouldn't let that be like, oh, there's you know, there's no name that fits us twenty five people. I guess we should give up and join different teams. You know, it's like, <laughs> no, man, you're the you're the getting things done team. You know, you're the you're the super team. You're the A team. I don't know. Like like just think of work that you have done and you were successful on and then if you need to codify that, fine. Then be like, this is the kind of work that we do. This is what we've been able to produce as a team of, of, of 25 people. And, uh, and maybe you can explain that somehow. Maybe you need a little internal website that explains your, what the A team is. But it seems like, I don't, who cares what like traditional corporate structures are like? You like each other. You work well together. You have this set of skills. Just keep doing it. Uh, I'm gonna pitch you on a on a my new a book apart book. This is this is one I, I want to write called Rise of the Internal Agency. I think this is a thing that's going on. I think a lot of companies are kind of like as as your company becomes more digital and as you know everyone kind of has needs more digital services. Uh, the the like there is kind of a bifurcation. It is like people who need to service the client, they do the client services. And then the people who are in charge of the like, like internal tools, the internal technology, the internal, like, like getting things done. Um, that could also be like research into like building prototypes or something to sell to clients or something, you know, like, like I think there's like a lot of, places where the the internal agency could kind of be a big deal that's I've what seen you are mark you're an internal agency and i've seen that in a, i've seen it in a lot of companies uh and i've heard it about it and i think it's a, a kind of a thing that's, that's even happened. what 18f was remember we were talking about them they're like an internal agency of the government yeah exactly i mean it's kind of like a it's an agency it's it is the company, but it's also not not bogged down by the the. It even operates like an agency. Like, oh, you need us to do work for you. Let's have a meeting and talk about it and 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 gant it out or who knows. Well, what. yeah. Well, and if you're you're like company's big enough, um, I'm trying to like Salesforce or something. Salesforce probably hires out, you know, Johnny. You know, freelancer Paravel <laughs> to <laughs> to work with them, and like it, it probably makes more sense for them to you know to you know try to bring that in house, and and so when they're like making a little page for some event or something, or, or like rather than like go through a whole acquisition and procuration process with another company they just hire the internal agency basically so i think i think it's becoming a thing um i think the in-house budgets for for internal web teams are growing so anyhow check 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 this episode of shop talk is brought to you in part by braintree payments 
by next year, maybe even next week, there could be a whole new way to pay. Maybe it will be the next Bitcoin, the next Apple Pay, maybe even both. Fortunately, Braintree's full-stack payment platform is easily adaptable to whatever the future holds, so you can easily adapt too. You know, new payment method comes out, you're already using Braintree, boom, you support it out of the box. Pretty cool. Except everything from Pounds to PayPal to that next big innovation from any device with just one integration. When that new payment method comes out, all you have to do is update a few lines of code. No late nights, no complete recoding. No stress about staying ahead of the curve. Braintree Payments is here to help. Learn more at braintreepayments.com slash shop talk and check out their SDK. It's in tons of different languages. Definitely the language that you're writing in. I almost promise you uh, elegant code, clear documentation. Braintreepayments.com slash shop talk. Nilesh. Rahapati, my question is when to use Flexbox, Flexbox versus uh, grid layout, essentially. Both, both you know, fairly modern CSS um, layout tactics, specs even. Flexbox a little older than grid layout. Flexbox still feels very new and fresh to a lot of people. I realize grid layout is even newer, especially in that um, Flexbox is like unprefixed in a lot of browsers. I think every single browser supports Flexbox in in some kind of way, uh, whereas Grid Layout is still very new. I think even in like modern Chrome, you still have to turn on a flag or something. So Grid Layout is 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 much newer. So when should you use it? Grid is still. I don't have anything in production using Grid yet. I think it still feels a little early for Grid. But but still, the question is valid. When would you reach for them? Let's say you know the question of browser support aside. When do you reach for them? them, there is a really easy mental exercise to choose between Flexbox and Grid. And one is Flexbox is a single, a linear, a line, a one-dimensional or thing, you know, like it, it can wrap, but it mostly goes one way. It goes either left to right, right to left, you know, or up to down, down to up. It only yeah. goes in one line. It's like train cars. You just Sure. You That's an to... awesome analogy. And grid is, is, is not. It's two-dimensional. It can go, you know, you can put a box in the upper left and a box in the lower right and fill the space in between and do that. It's more like a... Uh, I don't know, like an l- entire web layout. Like, look at any website. You can draw boxes around stuff, and they're all over the place. It, it's it's for that. It's not it's not locked into to one dimension. So I did not do a very good job of saying that. But w- one dimension flex box, two dimensions grid layout. Uh, that's the easy way to think about it. And so I would think like you know, but maybe the grid is in charge of like your whole website. You would like I think that's kind of the future of this. Is you're like you you're looking at like a sketch file of a mockup of the whole website on desktop, say, and you're like I'm gonna lay all of this out, everything that I see here with grid, and then maybe little stuff in between it, like the navigation bar. Uh, is probably Flexbox. And like the header where the logo is up on the upper left and some sign-in stuff is up on the upper right. That little chunk is Flexbox. Maybe there's literally a grid in the middle. I think like like one-dimensional grid, like we think of CSS framework grids. I think that's pretty good Flexbox usage. Mm-hmm. But like the whole thing overall with arbitrary boxes all over the place is, is good for grid. Um, yeah, I was, the only thing I can offer is I don't think there's a good polyfill for CSS grid. So if you have any older browser woes, uh, don't, 
don't use that in production, but play around with it and get to know it. Cause I'm, I'm ignorant of why I would want it. Every d- example I've seen is like, well, I could just do that with divs, you know, <laughs> divs in a little code, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I use Flexbox all over the place and it's like meeting almost all my needs. So I don't know that I'm going to like jump on grid layout, but people seem excited about it. So, uh, Mattia Moronic uh, writes in Mattia gets 20 shop doc show points. Long time listener. Thank you for writing in. Say you spend 20 hours, uh, doing much needed refactoring, uh, because you realize that you will, in total, spend much more time tripping over crappy code. How do you prevent your client from having a heart attack after presenting so many hours of non-visible results? Uh, do you educate them about technical debt and charge them in full, or do you subtract an arbitrary amount of hours? This question comes up from time to time. Uh, it's kind of like, can you charge your clients for refactoring, even though I guess it was kind of like your fault that it needs refactoring, which I don't know that that's a good way of thinking about it. There is a big difference here between, again, this divide between in-house work and client work, which is tough. So if you're doing client work, do you, do you go to your client and say, listen, I'm not going to add anything to your website at all, but I am going to charge you for 20 hours worth of work that just might make my life better in the future, maybe. <laughs> that would be a hard sell, potentially. You probably wouldn't say it that uh, honestly. You'd probably just be like, hey, working on a website takes time and effort, so here's the hours that I spent working on your website this month, which is also not a lie and fair. Because I think that refactoring work is vital to, to the, the health of you working on that website. It's not, it's not just like luxury work. It's, it's kind of required sometime. Now, compare that with internal work. If somebody that worked for me said, Chris, you know, there's this feature that's out on the site and I'd like to sp- like put a half a week in. I want to put a half a weekend and I'm just going to refactor the crap out of it and be like, you get a gold star. Absolutely. Please take that on. You know, the only reason I would ever say no to that is if there's some like crazy deadline or like I thought there was something more important that they should be working on or whatever. But for the most part, I'm going to err on yes, please. I like the way that you think as a developer. I want this code base to last and be happy and healthy into the future and and you spending half a week on refactoring some code yes please yeah i think you just need to sell it a bit right it's it's gonna be a better thing if i spend like a week half a week on it and i don't think anyone would bat an eye at it uh but maybe you negotiate how much that's worth or something you know i don't know if it, if it's I don't know if you're refactoring maybe the rate goes down I don't that's an option too you know I don't know anything no oh <laughs> that's it I I feel like we've talked about this quite a bit but it's it's again it's the like just talk to people I think is the <laughs> the, the answer because you you need to dis- discuss like. There, there are like these like five problems in the code that could be better and will make, you know, if you work on this later, it'll make it better, like easier to work on. And it, it just, that's just how code works. You know, you have to educate, but they may just be like, no, we're never fixing this. <laughs> Sorry. We, or like, we just need to see it in, in like, it needs to launch on Friday. So like, I don't know, we're not refactoring. That might be the priority. So, all right, next question. 
Vince Brown, I think, uh, writes in a couple months ago. I took the lead on a project that chose to go with a more modern workflow. WordPress site using Gulp as a task runner, which does these things. SVG icon system, compiles SAS, runs auto prefixer, minifies the CSS, concatenates all the scripts, minifies those as well. Uh, those are the kind of things I like to do too, Vince. That seems like a, a, a Chris Coyer kind of workflow. Uh, when I started the repo for the new site, I included all the slash source files uh, and all the slash dist files. So I think a lot of people understand what that means, right? There, a lot of times, you know, when you're building a site, you like you like separate the files that you work on as a developer and the files that are like generated by computers into dist. Uh, and we put them all in the Git repo. This was not a problem at first because it was just me working on it. Then he onboards two new developers. Uh, uh, and it works out pretty good for the most part, which I'm sure is testament to your nice build process and stuff. But then they start getting merge conflicts. And most of the merge conflicts are in the dist folder. This has again been a common question on Chop Talk Show. Is that like what's the best practice with these computer generated files and specifically in the context of version control? Because version control kind of doesn't help you. Uh, like if if I land commit A and you push commit B, uh, I get your version B. You know, it, it may like give a like merge conflict. You know, but you get like you may just be like, no, mine's right. And then now I have version B and version A changes aren't in there. So hopefully that made sense. But it's a uh, yeah, what I mean, I the golden answer is never commit those, but that's not always the way, right? Like that's not always the way to do it. Or Well, I mean, think of an example of how Jekyll works on GitHub. Like that's a very common combo, right? Cuz it's Jekyll is supported on GitHub pages. It's like one of the only backend things that processes on GitHub pages, if not the only thing, right? So if they encourage you to not even contribute the dist files at all. That just yeah. it automatically makes those. Like that's a pretty good evidence of a best practice then. I would say if you can keep those dist files out of there, uh, it's as simple as a git ignore probably, and every developer automatically makes them because every single time Gulp runs, it's going to make those files. I just I think if there's any way you can keep them out of the repo, keep them out of the repo. It, the, the, the point at which this becomes more difficult is that in deployment, you then need to have Gulp or whatever installed on the server or you need to or you need to have you just need to write a build process that isn't as simple as just move these files right and your build your your build and deploy could be like i i have an npm script that i I go npm run build or i could actually do npm run deploy which you know builds it and then runs and like will deploy it for me. So you could do it like one person is in charge of deployment or, or, or anyone can deploy, but it'll <laughs> kind of just ship in whatever state. Um, the, but they need to make sure they're on. Yeah, or like the files are coming from your computer. They're not coming from the, the, the repo because the repo yeah. doesn't have the distribution files on purpose. But if you're doing like a continuous deployment thing, like going from GitHub to I'm I'm doing GitHub to Azure right now, which is mm-hmm. interesting. Uh, they actually make it really easy to like just 
just like, Hey, get my files from GitHub and make a website. So, uh, you can like, that's, uh, that's a thing. Like you could, um, you could do that. Um, it, it, it's very, what do I want to say? It's, it's, it has problems though. Like if you want to, uh, if you want to, compile anything or run gulp or install gulp you have to manually you have to program it to do that so now now you need a little file in your your repo that tells you know azure or whatever service how to build this website so and heroku does the same thing uh heroku you just ship the raw stuff and then it'll like uh go into like production mode and it'll do everything the hardcore way so yeah I think I think just I think if you can get a place where you're not committing minified files, that's the best, right? Yep. That's the that's the solution. So sure, and you can always say I think that another kind of rule here is that if there is a merge conflict, just be like, oh, whatever, just accept one or the other. Who cares? Because you can blast away that entire folder if you want to and rebuild it because it's just dist file. So who cares? And if that happens, if you're in charge, if you if the merge conflict happens to you, make sure that you do do that. And, it's the, and make sure that there are no merge conflicts in the actual developer files. Because if there isn't any merge conflicts whatsoever in the authored files, then who cares about the dist folder? Just let there be a merge conflict, whatever. Uh, one of the things that I thought I would mention is the fact that we have these CodePen meetups, right? You can go to the, click the meetups thing in the in the uh, uh, in part of the navigation on CodePen. You can go and see if there's one in your area that you'd like to go to. You know, they're in lots of areas. We've had like over a hundred of them at this point. But let's say there isn't one near you and you want to have one, uh, which is a smart choice because they're super fun. You know, they can be in any kind of format. You can make up your own format. You know, it's fun. We you know we have a a whole system for you hosting these meetups if you want to. And I just recently made a page for them that explains all that. So click a link in the show notes or go to codepen.io slash meetups slash host and we can even hook you up with a sponsor to make sure that things can get paid for. You know, if you need to buy uh, food and beverages and stuff, we send you CodePen swag that you can give away and more stuff. And uh, it's a fun time. We make a RSVP system so people can sign up for the event. You can throw one of these things. You can do it. You can have your own CodePen meetup. Uh, click the link to follow and check out the page that explains all of that. Travis Valerius. Uh, Valerius. Rhymes with hilarious. Sorry, Travis. Travis Valerius. Long-time listener, first-time asker, thank you for writing into the Shop Talk show. I would love to hear your experiences and thought on A-B testing and MVT. I will confess right now, I don't know what that is. Uh, have either of you done opt-in? Oh, multivariant testing. I got it. Uh, have either of you done uh, site optimization tests? Have you ever considered it? Do you think it's unnecessary? To be clear, I'm talking about opt tests like services offered from companies like Maximizer or Optimizely. So, uh, Chris, A-B testing. Do you do it? Have you done it? What do you think? Very little of it. I I don't know. I feel like it can be overdone. I I, 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 I hate to even say that because it's like, what do I know? I have so little experience in it. So why should I get to be in charge of like extolling opinions on it? I feel like the best use case for it is when it's a very simple 
uh, actionable thing. Like, oh, I have this ad on my sidebar, and I want that ad to be as effective as it can be. So I'm going to make another version of that ad, and then I'm going to A-B test between those two versions of the ad for a significant amount of time. And then whichever one does better, I'm going to stick with that one. That seems like a really clear and obvious and easy way to A-B test. I feel like when it starts getting more complicated than that, there starts to be so many variants and stuff that like it's hard to rely on the data that you even get from that and then let's say that like that you know you you've picked a winner and then you keep cascading that choice into other choices and now you've made 10 choices based on like loose data it's like it's it's hard for me to like be very certain that you know, an early choice in some A-B testing didn't like soil the rest of this whole thing. And if we just didn't do any A-B testing at all, we might be in the same place. You can't A-B test not A-B testing is the, is there's, the complicated there's Actually, part. there's posts where there's... Okay, I'm going to come out and say I'm not a fan. Anyway, uh, <laughs> there's there's... There's a time and a place, but I think it. I think it's like got to be approached like real freaking science, not just growth hacking. That's my first and final opinion. But there's like AA tests. Like this guy ran, he tested his emails AA, and he got like statistical significance, which is really hard to get. And he got it. He did A and A tests, and uh, the A second A won three hundred percent more clicks. Can you believe it, Chris? Like mm, 300%, 300% more clicks from the same email. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of red herrings. I think a lot of people do it wrong. I think it's really hard to figure out, but I think like what you're saying is like, like let's come up with three scenarios. We, we all think are good ideas and like, just try, like see if there's like a huge, huge difference in, in what makes us money. Um, otherwise let's just do the one that we think is the, you know, Let's do the best one. Um, I I've seen companies waste lots of money doing this. I, I feel like you know you never go to a website and you're like, oh man, this website's so great. They must A B test. You know, <laughs> like, and there are websites that A B test a lot. Like Amazon is always the yeah. like like everyone's oh Amazon made a hundred million dollars by changing a button. You know, and and that's maybe true, but like those figures get so out of whack. You know, like oh we increased it one percent. That's twelve billion dollars. It's like well why aren't you like the richest person in the world? Because <laughs> if you could just change a button and like quintuple your money, I just there's. There's so much, I think, like mal science. Well, what happens to the loser, science. you know? Like, do you test against the loser for the rest of your every single A-B test that you ever test? Just because I imagine, like, okay, you, you know, you have this set of 10. So you pit, you pit one against two and two wins. Then you pit two against three and two wins. Then you pit against two against four and four wins. And then, you pit, you know, now you're four versus five and five wins. And you, so you, you, you keep moving on, right? Do you ever, do you ever, battle eight against one again because like what if one wins that one then it's like oh god that entire journey getting here has been invalidated because now one randomly won against this one that should have like based on these warrior battles we've been fighting in the stadium of optimizely 
we just never tested against like a, a loser in the early round. Maybe there's some way to science your way out of that. I don't even know. And then and then and then there's like the like wh- it's so dangerous to be wrong. I run a web startup. I'm dependent on people signing up for the service and signing up for the the pro plan, which you should of course do right <laughs> immediately after hearing me say that sentence. What if what if I've been just throwing money down a dumpster because I didn't run a test that pr- that that significantly increased signups because I changed a color to blue that was purple before. Like, like if, if I made that, you know, like what if I'm, what if I'm leaving money on the table? And that's why these services are always going to exist because those doubts will always be in your mind and you can't answer them without a service like this or without running, writing your own code and figuring out some kind of way to do that. Cause I just don't know. And it feels scary to me that I, that I literally, you might be burning money, not doing it. Chris, are you saying they're preying on your Doubts and fear. <laughs> no, actually, and, and think, you need well, to pay them money I for some kind that, of cure all. Man, <laughs> AB testing is like snake oil or something. Jeez. I don't know if that's true. I think like I've actually literally used optimizing. It seems like it's pretty pretty nice. Like it really did the trick and it measures stuff you want to do. Like it's pretty well done software. But yeah, at the heart of it, it that may be the case is that it's just uh, an emotional appeal. Well, there's like a, you know, there's some good data, like, like increasing your speed of your website makes you, you know, gives you whatever one per, 10% more conversion or something, you know, there's, there's like kind of consistent themes in data that, that kind of show up. There's, uh, you know, no one's like, we made our website faster and people quit showing up, you know, that's tends not to be the story. Uh, there's things like we, I just, that's the thing too, is like you can spend these AB tests cost your organization time and money to like generate, to design, to implement, to roll out, to test, to, you know, like, could, could you have just spent a little bit uh, of money and just make it faster? You know, like, I don't know. Uh, like, could, could you have like fixed something else? And, and so I don't know. I don't know. I'm that's, I, I just have like these, like, I feel like people are kind of do it wrong and jump to conclusions. It's like the, uh, jump to conclusions, Matt, in, in <laughs> office space. It's like, oh, well, so people clicked more jump, go, go for it. You know, it's like, well, science is like reproducible. You should like do that test, like four or five, six times, like publish your results, have like people kind of like, <laughs> what is it? Peer reviewed evaluation, whether or not that was actually a significant test. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know. It's like a, I don't know, a pseudoscience that preys on your fears. It's like <laughs> snake oil. That's my professional opinion. Uh, be sure to hire me at Dave Rupert LLC. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I if I could I could also be persuaded that it's a good thing but I you know anyway that's uh, feeling punchy this morning let's go uh here's a last question we'll wrap it up uh just wondering how uh, from just wondering that's a yeah, clever I love your last name uh how do you handle terms of use and privacy policies for both your clients and your own projects at what point do you feel the need to hire a legal professional uh, what is a good approach for doing so? Mm. 
this is pretty good. So I imagine like, okay, Dave's working with Microsoft. He doesn't deal with that crap at all, probably, because obviously they do, because they're a big corporation and they, I'm sure, have entire teams that deal with mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Then there's shoptalkshow.com. We don't even have one because we don't really ask anything of you. I don't really know that we need a privacy policy because we don't even, you can't log in to our sites. You know, we don't, there's no, it's not necessary to have. No, no. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, terms of use is like, oh, if you, whatever, steal our MP3s and make money on your own site, we'll sue yeah, sure. the Jesus out of you. But I don't, you know. We'd probably I, look around for some kind of podcast TOS and read it over and see if that works for us, maybe change a few things and post it. We haven't done that. I can't imagine us actually getting around to doing that, but maybe. Yeah, there's some pretty basic stuff. I mean, it's, I think if you get into like a very, very big like user generated content kind of thing, or or like people like spamming, abusing your service, like you can write terms of service that's like if you if we catch you spamming, you owe us ten grand for every spam post you you give, and and they at some point accepted the terms of use, and so now you like. You have a cash cow, and just if you can find these anonymous people and and sue them, uh, but you know you probably can't. So that's a bummer. Um, we were told so at CodePen, which is in the kind of a middle ground there, that we need to have these and do have custom versions of it. Literally, did hire a lawyer. I'd say if it, you know, if you're using user generated content, you're asking people to log into your site. Um, you probably should have one, and depending on the size of that project, if you. If it seems like a big, important project that is your life, you should probably hire a lawyer and do it. There are lawyers that specifically handle this kind of thing. You know, you might even you know have good luck in Silicon Valley trying to find one just because of the, um, you know, how much of that action is going around there. We hired one. We worked with one. They they said it was cool. One of the cool things we learned about it is that you can do that plain text interpretation of your privacy policy policy and in terms of service like read it digest it and then kind of say what it means in english next to it mm-hmm. doesn't affect the legality of it um uh, it's still the, the you know the legal version is the one that you know is marked as such and and so that's kind of a cool thing and you don't even have to ask people to agree to it really uh you just they it's just it applies to the usage of your website i think it's probably a best practice and i think we're going to improve our are needing to agree to it thing because I think it's just a little it's just a little bit more obvious. We have a kind of an uh, not an issue, but a thing that's being talked about more and more in CodePen is the licensing of public pens on CodePen, which are MIT and they always have been since day one. Uh, but it's maybe not as clear as it should be, and I'm I'm thinking of make, making that more clear in various ways, including upon signing up. Oh. Okay. Uh, which, but I, but yeah, you don't even you know you don't even have to have a checkbox. It's just that the lawyer told us you don't. And yeah, I think the less checkboxes, the you know the better the A/B testing is going to turn out for signing up. So we've definitely ran stuff by lawyers. Um, one thing we did um, uh, is for day trip uh, the WordPress.org uh, privacy policy in terms of service. They are. Um, Creative Commons, so you can change words and you know basically URLs and um, kind of have your own thing. And, and it's pretty, you know, like like website visitors gathering personally identifiable information. We, you know, uh, you know, it's it's things like that, like the just kind of s- standard, like how we approach privacy and how and we kind of 
agreed with it. And we put a little like, uh, this is sort of what we think about the privacy. You know, it's important. And we have discussions, man. A lot, uh, thinking about privacy, like really, I don't know. It's exhausting because you, you have to consider kind of every angle. So, um, yeah, I, I recommend you do that at some point. You just be like, it's worth an exercise and then find something that you can kind of repeat. So definitely don't copy one and paste it on your website without like really clearly reading it and making sure that it all applies to you and all that stuff. Cause it is a legally binding document and it can just be embarrassing if there's like wrong URLs in there and language that's, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a problem. So just do a good job. All right, well... That'll do it. Let's wrap it up. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Shop Talk Show. Be sure to star heart, favorite, tweet it. That's how people find out about the show. We really appreciate that. And uh, if you hate your job, head over to shoptalkshow.com slash jobs. Follow us on Twitter for tens of tweets a month. And, Chris, you got anything else for... Uh, uh, you know that we'll mention your job on this show, too. That's part of checking out for a job, is that, like, you know, get a, yeah. get a mention on Shop Talk Show. So if you want us to, uh, you know, talk about your job, assuming it's a cool job, <laughs> it's, um... we will. All right. See you next time. Bye. ShopDogShow.com.